gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. This is episode 22, the review section for, what is it, uh, May 9th, 2014. Uh, we're back from Katie's wedding. We're back from the island of Lost. Uh, we're back from all sorts of things, um, but we are we're delivering. Back. We're back, baby. We're back. But we are delivering a review this week. Uh, and and what are, what are we reviewing this week, David? We are reviewing Richard Ayoade's new and second feature, The Double. And that's the only film we're reviewing. Which, which uh, Wikipedia describes as a black comedy. For I'd say that's fair. Is it? I well, well, I guess I mean, we'll get in that. Um, we should jump right in. This yeah. this movie is based on uh, uh, Dostoevsky's no, no, novella, yeah. uh, uh, yes, the double, which is also called the double, um, and it, it takes serious deviations from that text. I have not read that novella, but according to Iwade, they do not resemble each other. Mainly because this movie does not take place in Russia uh, in any way. At least I do not believe it does. This is very well, much an alternate world kind of film. It doesn't have a real setting other than this kind of like noir construct. Right. It's lack of setting, I think, is uh, its, it's most pivotal important. setting. I think it's, it's, uh, it's much more important. It's sort of spacelessness in which the movie takes place. It, it really feels like it all transpires in a void uh, that, if anything, sort of resembles a... Um, alternate history version of Pyongyang is how it feels. But it's, uh, it's, I think it's explicitly important to uh, the feel and, and themes of the story that uh, it is sort of unplaceable in any real sense of time. And you see that reflected in uh, everything you see on screen, especially in the set design and the props, the technology which all feel, right, everything feels retro, but not retro in a way that you could say, oh, this is from the 1950s. It, it feels like... Uh, an alternate history's immediate past. Yes. And so Jesse Eisenberg plays this character, Simon James, who's kind of cog in the machine, corporate world. He, he's a computer programmer. Or he works with computers. But in this world, computers are basically giant 50s-esque boxes, oscilloscopes running all the time. They do everything and seemingly do nothing. Right. Um, and Wallace Shawn plays his boss, Mr. Papadopoulos. And, uh, and yeah, he's just a corporate cog, but he, he has much affection for the girl downstairs in the, in the mail room. Uh, Mia Wazakowska plays Hannah. She's in the, she's in the uh, or, fittingly enough, the, oh, the, the Xerox room. room. Yeah, right. the copy room. <laughs> she makes copies. Um, but she also happens to live across from him, and he's he's a peeping Tom in this case. He he loves from afar with his telescope and watches this girl uh, and, and lusts for her. And then one day, when he's spying on her, he witnesses someone jump off her building, commit suicide. And this kind of sets off a, a, a strange string of events where... Like, I think the next day, correct me if I'm wrong, but the next day after this man who he, who he does not know and has no connection to and, and the police have no idea why this man would jump, but apparently suicide's very common in this world. <laughs> well, they um, aren't the, police in the uh, – they don't seem to be police in the traditional sense. They're just sort of – They're on the, the suicide, suicide beat. Squad, yes. Right, and they are far and away the cheeriest characters in the film. Uh, so that is a little, you know, sort of a discordant element right from the beginning. They're actually – one of them is the kid from Submarine, Iowati's uh, right. previous feature, if you're big fans of those. I don't know. And, then, and then the next day after this suicide, uh, Simon goes to work 
and encounters his double, this other, this new employee, James Simon, reverse name there, and who looks exactly like him. And no one seems to care except him <laughs> that there's an exact copy of him mulling about the office. And this, you know, Simon James is an introvert. He's he's kind of Jesse Eisenberg esque, oh. if you will. Uh, and James Simon is an extrovert. He's romancing people. He's he's full of charisma and these two will obviously be at odds david am i missing anything here in the, in the setup this is basically a clash of personalities and watching it play out in this very peculiar world this whole world is already on edge i feel it like. is i mean i think that you uh you pretty much did a, you did a good job just setting up the the basic premise i mean it, the film moves very quickly it runs a very fast 95 minutes, 93 minutes, whatever it is, uh, and Patches just sort of took you through um, the opening 20, and from there, it sort of proceeds uh, like clockwork. I mean, it has a very exacting rhythm to it, uh, not a thing is out of place. I mean, I think... uh, you know, as you can read any of the interviews with with Iowate or mine or anyone else's, they're like twelve. Or mine. The we all talk to Richard uh, Iowate right, for this movie. All, um, they're all uh, references inevitably come up. I mean, I think that um, I sort of got into how helpful that may or may not be with him, but I think for you guys, it could be helpful just to give you a, an understanding as to how the movie moves. Uh, as it feels like a combination, to me at least, of of Wes Anderson and Roy Anderson. Um, <laughs> but if uh, uh, the most common Comparison has definitely been Gilliam's Brazil, but I agree with Iowate's. Uh, it doesn't really move that that like is superficial. Brazil. Yeah, uh, lot, I think that's that just a production the, design comparison. Right. Um, I think that After Hours and the manic energy to Scorsese's film is actually a lot closer. Although, if anything, and this could probably be where we wrap up the uh, reference game, um, the the movie that it really the soul uh, is most borrowed from for me was The Apartment, uh, Billy Wilder's film. Um, I think that there are a lot of similar beats and the uh, sort of learned helplessness of the main character is similar to that. But speaking of the main character, I think Jesse Eisenberg is terrific in both these roles. It's incredible how believable he is on both sides. I think he channels his sort of uh, nervous energy that we saw a lot from him earlier in his career uh, in films like The Squid and the Whale and uh, with the more... Uh, fine-tuned arrogance that defined his performance as Mark Zuckerberg and The right. Social Network and that uh, we saw actually in the pretty much unwatchable uh, Now You See Me <laughs> where he plays something of a uh, – I think that was the only movie where he really played someone who was supposed to have significant sex appeal. Uh, right. He's a smooth talker as James Simon. He can channel right. that like quick-paced energy into sweeping someone off their feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, And uh, no, go on. Oh, I was going to say that just adding to why I was kind of blown away by this double performance, this twofer, um, I'm very obsessed with actors' hands, especially Jesse Eisenberg, Uh who, and like that's where a lot of this (laughs) character, yeah, I'm a creep. I'm a creep. Um, Like, there's so much work in the hands here, and the the really, the nuanced physical details of, um, it's, it's not a big, broad characterization to have to separate these two. They're very alike, and that's what it needs to be. They need to feel very close. And it has to be in the in the ver- in the minutia where these two are separated, and um, obviously the vocalizations help. But something about the hands, the way that James Simon, you know, will will entrance people uh, with his movement, and uh, Simon James will stir them up or or keep them up from afar. Just his nervous energy, as you said, this kind of shakiness. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know. There, there's not a whole lot. 
as you said, this kind of it's quick paced from beginning to end. We kind of know where maybe where all these beats are going as he's downward spiraling and and losing his life Although to I Simon think, James. Uh, but people might be surprised how far down the film spirals. I mean, that's this true. is a bleak movie. Um, it, it is. It is based much, on a Russian novella, after <laughs> indeed. Uh, and you know, the, and the novella. The character is going mad. It's explicit that he is uh, losing his mind. And, of course, the uh, form that his mania takes is expressive of the sort of the greater themes. But in this movie, um, that madness is is much less clear. I mean, this is uh, happening very literally, I think, cinematically he needs to, to Simon. Um, and the frustration for him is that nobody else seems to notice or care. Uh, nobody else finds it weird in the slightest that somebody with his face um, who they like a lot more and are a lot more attracted to, even though uh, in almost all ways they are identical to Simon, shows up. And I think that the, 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 in, a, in its own way, the film really has to go to darker, deeper places in order to sort of burrow out from the bottom of that than it would if it were simply the story of somebody having a nervous breakdown. Does this, does this feel like a, a genre game to you? Is this a movie about cinema and how it operates and reality versus fantasy and how far you can push that with the film medium? Or is this really about human psyche. I, I, I've been kind of debating that myself. Um, if I don't know if it's treading new places in terms of that, or if it's really hitting a new note for me, um, but I love just watching these performers go at it, and I love the way that Iwade is navigating through this world. I don't know if it, I'm having a revelation in terms of um, thematic uh, you know, uh, exploration. So what you're saying, I mean, to think about what sort of commentary the movie has in, of a self-reflexive variety. I mean, I think it's it's certainly there. And having I've, – I've actually seen the film twice already, but uh, so there were six-month intervals in between there. And uh, so I feel like I was approaching it for the first time both times out. And I you know, haven't really gotten that far along yet. But uh, I think that in a movie like this, that those elements are very much in play. I mean, for me, it was – it's much more about what we were talking about, about learned helplessness and about how uh, – and about how we – I don't know. I don't want to go too broad with it. But I think his, his relationship with Hannah, Mia Wasikowska's character, who was not in the novella in any way, um, and how he sort of uh, transposes his idea of who she is onto her um, and doesn't see how that is at odds with how people see him um, is really at the core of what this movie's about. And I think that so much of his own little journey of self-discovery and one of the words that I – feel like I say more often on this podcast than in the other is agency, you know, he sort of, uh, you know, learns to come out of that learned helplessness, I think is seen through how he begins to view her as a real person and less of a manic pixie dream girl as he quite literally with the art that she discards through her trash compactor puts her together. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a loneliness to it I, that I think is very, relatable, although that's a very dangerous word. Um, and I, I think that there's a – it really does not get mired in the corporate satire or corporate comedy that I think defined a lot of movies like this in the past that defined something like um, The Apartment. I mean I think it really looks for the, the human element in all of that uh, in this world that seems completely devoid of it. Um, and it never loses sight of what it's doing. There are so many brilliant – compositions and and visual sight gags um it seems like 
every shot has uh, has been so exactingly thought out, and yet there's still so much life in the performances, which you know can be one of the first things that is sort of suffocated when you have a movie that moves like clockwork, like this one does. The music, Andrew Hewitt's music, uh, the score that he wrote for the, mu- the movie is incredible and harried, and uh, the sort of the it helps with the unplaceability of where the film is and sort of how it's lost in time with the pre-recorded music that Iowata uses which are pop songs most of which come from Japan and Korea and then there's um uh shit, what's that that guy's name uh, he's from Finland and has never been in a Karismaki movie believe it or not even though this movie uh so uh, Jackie and the Islanders, I think, yeah. Anyway, there's so much great music in the movie. There's a great TV show within the world of the movie starring Patty Considine. Uh, there's, I think this movie is going to have a, a long life to it. I think that people who enjoy it and discover it down the road are really going to cling on to it. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I loved it. I think it's terrific. Well, I'm, I'm glad that the movie can get away with um, being so operatic, uh, as you were talking about with the music and just... Um, all this, all these little flourishes, the television show, um, and and kind of that's the way it's throwing us off balance in terms of reality. Um, we don't have uh, such a understandable reality from the beginning. And what I find interesting is how Mia Wasikowska's performance kind of arcs throughout this movie. Um, as you said, what he's placing upon her and how she changes and how she kind of is disrupted by his other throughout this. What, what do you think of her performance? Wasikowska? Yeah. I think that she is, uh, and I try to separate this from, I mean, I think, I was going to say I try to separate this from like my attraction to her, but I think of my attraction to her is not physical. I think it actually stems from the parts that she's played and the roles that she's embodied. I think that she's terrific in this. She does such interesting work, but it always has that sort of, um, that ele- that element of distance. I mean, I think that her character here is sort of defined by its unknowability, by the uh, Simon's inability to sort of pierce her outer shell and figure out who she is. Um, and we saw that very much as she was sort of had that own distance from herself in Stoker. Uh, I'm really excited to see her in Maps of the Stars. But I think that a director like Ayoade, who has such careful attention to visual detail here, really. Um, not unlike Jim Jarmusch did in Only Lovers Left Alive, which is another great performance and another great movie that she's done recently, um, finds a way to sort of milk her aesthetic and her look to be expressive of exactly what the story needs it to be. Uh, And I think that she's very malleable in that sense and is a talented enough actress to uh, understand exactly her function. I mean, something that I talked to Ayoade about is, uh, you know, making her a well-rounded character that at the same time exists purely through Simon's eyes. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by her. There's a scene when they get to um, the diner that Simon always frequents, and she becomes, she starts getting interested in James. She wants to date him, like her romantic interests veer, or at least become known to Simon. And suddenly, this character who has been very quiet and seen from afar, and I think my, my knowledge of Mia Wasikowska, she's always played kind of quiet strange female characters before she like bursts with energy here. She's Mm. just coming out and like, she, she is the smooth operator. She's the quick talker. She has lots to say. And I I thought that was such an elegant change of pace. That's like pulling the carpet from under uh, Jesse Eisenberg's feet, but done in a way that makes sense. It definitely works in that regard in the movie. I think as far as precociousness, it wasn't uh, having seen um, only lovers left alive, 
I thought that it was sort of in that same vein. So it wasn't like a you know, revelatory thing for me watching her do this here because she has that sort of very uh, capable energy mm. in both performances where she is um, – I mean, and she she has a confidence in that her character in Only Lovers Left Alive has a confidence that Hannah does not have in the double. But I think that, um, yeah, again, as I said, there's like a capability uh, to her energy where like she feels, um, I don't know, where the world can sort of bend to her will. And I think that it works really, really well. And uh, I think that she's terrific. I mean, I think the movie is is uh, excellently cast from top to bottom. I mean, obviously, Jesse Eisenberg is sort of the the heart of it uh, and and. The movie wouldn't work without his performance, but I think you know everybody around him does such a good job of uh, bringing a lot to the table, a lot of unique sort of interpretation to the table, while still never forgetting that their character exists to be a um, direct extension of what's happening. Right, right, right. Like I love Noah Taylor in this movie, um, who's just always giving Simon a hard time. Or one of the things that plagues Simon throughout the movie is that he can't get into the building. He's lost Mm -hmm. his ID. And Noah Taylor just keeps chopping him off at the at the knees, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um and, and there's a As part Noah Taylor usually does. <laughs> exactly. Especially in Game of Thrones. Um but uh, sometimes I get distracted when uh directors bring back their like, you know, Noah Taylor was in Submarine, Sally Hawkins appears in this movie. These are kind of cameos. They all seem to fit in the off kilter reality of this movie. I don't get I'm not pulled out of it just because they're going back to the ensemble in some ways. Um, I, I wanted to ask you that, uh, what, what did you think of Submarine? Because uh, people I, are kind of in the middle on that one. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will ha- I, I'm excited to watch Submarine again at some point after seeing this, as opposed to never having any interest in revisiting it uh, you know, prior to seeing the double. But, um, you know, I, I saw Submarine the one time at a screening, uh, you know, whenever it came out, and I really, I don't remember thinking much of it. I thought that it was cute, but sort of unformed, and uh, I don't think that, while while it bore the weight of its influences, I don't think it did anything particularly interesting with them. And I uh, saw the double at Toronto, where it was premiering, and I hadn't read anything about it, and... Um, I I think I'd actually just seen Enemy. I did a bad double header of uh, double Enemy double and double header. Yeah, uh, which was bizarre, and um, and both were satisfying in their own ways. But I was really blown away by the quantum leap in uh, what I was doing. And maybe if I go back and revisit Submarine, I'll see the germs of that. I'll see that he, there was more going on in that film than I picked up on the first go around. But uh, um, I think that you know this firmly establishes him as a filmmaker who is well worth watching. And speaking to him, I I assume you had a similar experience. He's so uh, cinematically literate and so eloquent and he's so smart that you you have to imagine that anything he does from here on out um, will, you know, it may not be your cup of tea, um, but it will be exactly what he means it to be. And that is exciting. uh, Something that I find interesting about this movie, you know, speaking of Enemy, Enemy does a lot visually playing off the double theme um and and that is a motif for it i didn't find that and maybe i overlooked this in the double um but this is very much about composing within these like three different sets and i'm amazed how much um Iowade gets away with changing up what these look like through lighting or angles and not really relying on a visual motif like that kind of hammering in this double visual um, and really just being on 
Simon James, just being on Jesse Eisenberg, the main character, and always seeing, you know, we see James Simon off talking to Wallace Shawn or something. And this this is a movie about one character as opposed right. to this weird motif and trying to be really metaphorical about it. It's just about this downward spiral. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, the shots that he uses to uh, really cement the idea that the double is real and it exists are so effective um, that... He doesn't. I think that the film is sort of unburdened to uh, go out and and establish and do more interesting things visually rather than belabor this one idea. I mean, there's a shot that I think was in the teaser trailer uh, of them just walking down a hallway, and the way that it's lit, it, the light falls on one of their faces and then another one of their faces, and back and forth as they walk down this hallway. And then there's a wider shot uh, where you see them both standing together waiting for the subway. And in those two shots, everything you need to understand about the uneasy almost unspoken relationship between them is perfectly clear. Uh, and it's, it's really succinct, effective visual storytelling. Well, I think that, well, actually, wait, I have one, well, this might be getting into spoiler territory. Are they, what are they all about? Are they real? Who knows? Well, I, I'm curious what people think about the end of this movie because there's still a lot of question marks. I but I think. don't think it's like, um, it's, it's not, I don't know. I, I, I don't it's not mystery box anything. or something. Yeah, I don't right. want to get a spoiler. It's not like Enemy in that you're just like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> right, and then right, it's over. Right. I mean, I think that the relationship between them is very clear uh, and sure. makes perfect sense within the context of the universe. I mean, it is uh, from the very beginning, this is a movie that violates the rules of the real world as we know them. But um, I don't think it leaves you with any sort of lingering mystery as to what has been happening. It makes, I mean, they're like, okay, this is the relationship between them and it happens in the way that there's a sort of physical bond between them. Um, and I at least just, I was like, okay, that's the relationship between them. That makes sense. That's <laughs> it kind of makes sense based on all the other heightened stuff that's happened yeah, in and this universe. Yeah, I mean, the movie is not, not very crazy. much about plot. I mean, again, it all comes back to sort of uh, Simon's neuroses and his place in this world uh, and everything else is just sort of um you know a frill it's icing on the cake for for that so i definitely want to hear people's thoughts on twitter facebook whatever i'm curious what people think about that and um i I wanted to ask you david um chef you saw chef at south by southwest right Uh, i did see chef give me your your, while we're doing this game there's another movie i have to give a shout out to this weekend but we can talk about chef really quickly oh yeah tell me about chef uh, you, did the, you see the, the one minute, the one minute review of Chef. No, I did, did not see Chef. They're not really screening it too much outside of uh, that South by event. Uh, Chef is a lovely uh, little movie. I mean, it's completely inoffensive. It's the rare, it's the rare movie um, that has absolutely no dramatic conflict, at least for the last seventy minutes of the film. I mean, it is really uh, after a more traditional first act where John Favreau in a very broadly autobiographical movie about a chef who wants to do his own thing and works for a uh, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, who's a very the man, the man who's the studios and uh, studio interference frustrates him, and and uh, a, the blogger Oliver Platt, the food blogger, does not respond well to what the uh, chef's boss makes him cook, and so cowboy faster than you can say cowboys and aliens and Iron Man too, uh, <laughs> chef. Takes his nine-year-old kid. He's a divorced. He's he's divorced from uh, Sofia Vergara, who plays an actual human in this, rather than sort of a like Colombian Jessica Rabbit. I know. Uh, he flies to Florida, where Robert Downey Jr. sets him up with a food truck, and essentially the rest of the movie is him, his kid, and John Leguizamo driving back to Los Angeles, uh, stopping in Austin and New Orleans. I was about to say, I, w- I was hoping they actually went to South by Southwest to really c- they, complete oh, they, the uh, metaphor. 
they went to Franklin's, okay. uh, which is anyone who's been to Austin knows Franklin's, and the oh audience God. lost their oh. minds. Um, and the food, the, the, it's a you know one of the more mouthwatering movies I've seen since Big Night. I mean, they they definitely it's a lot of food porn. Um, it will make you very very hungry. It's not a particularly good movie, but it's very harmless and cute and. Uh, and it really, uh, at least for me, you know, who gets frustrated at seeing these movies have to fit the conventional sort of hero's journey and always have to contrive ways to make their hero suffer and you, you know, suffer by extension in the audience. It's genuinely refreshing to just like, you know, watch watch people be happy for a little while. Right. Uh, and there are elements introduced. You're like, uh oh, here's the thing that's going to go horribly wrong just by good intentions, and everyone's going to hate each other for a second before they make up. Uh, and it's like, nope, it's just like a nice sign of love. <laughs> they all uh, it all <laughs> ends happily ever after, and uh, it's really lovely in that regard. But well, the the far more significant movie coming out this weekend uh, is Gia Coppola's yes. first feature, Palo Alto. Um, Gia being Francis Ford Coppola's granddaughter and Sofia Coppola's niece. Uh, it's adapted loosely from a James Franco collection of short stories that sort of reads Which like I a high school. I can't imagine reading. Like, how can that I be real? I can't imagine. I mean, I've read a few of them, and, and they're not great. Um, the movie is phenomenal. Uh, I don't know if the movie's phenomenal, but I'll, I'll contend with you phenomenal. in a second. Yes. But I think, uh, and, you know, I think. I, I definitely have a... This is the Coppola whatever, style. Right. This is I the mean, family whatever, style. Whatever Sophie Coppola does trickles down a little bit. Um, I mean, we can we could parse out, oh, we won't now, how they are different as much as they are the same, the films of Gia and Sophie Coppola. But the influence of something like Virgin Suicides is evident. And, uh, you know, that that is right up my alley. But I think this sort of uh, mini mosaic of these, this triptych really of high school stories. There's Emma Roberts as a girl. There's Jack Kilmer, Val Kilmer's son, as a uh, kid who likes her and she likes him, but they don't really, they have no way of communicating that to one another. And then there's Nat Wolf as this maniac oh named my God. Fred. He's a, really, he's a self-destructive loose cannon. He is a, a crazy guy in this movie. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's uh, Zoe Levin as sort of the school quote unquote slut. Um, which is a movie that I think this the oh, word that this movie really disempowers, which is great. But um, I, I mean, I think it's has such a great haze to it. It does such a literal haze, a, a literal <laughs> haze. It is a very um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in high school for eleven years now, but th- this movie not only felt palpably real and true to the high school experience, but also felt just as much like a memory of the high school experience. It's sort of sort of lost in that space in between um, where all these kids are sort of becoming, but never really declaring themselves as one thing or the other. It really right. uh, it moves very much unlike uh, most high school films that you've for, seen. Um, I thought it was really, and it, me, it ends so well. For me, um, you know, a lot of the high school movies we see are basically fantasies, you know, uh, who really parties like they do in American Pie or Can't Hardly Wait or who, maybe you did growing up and <laughs> who knows. Um, you know, high school movies are fantasies and this one's more like a lucid dream where some of these fantasy aspects are coming into play. They do like smoke weed and drink from red solo cups and like hang out and, uh, in, on the streets and just spend endless summer nights together, uh, and yet they're they're kind of reckoning with reality at all times. They're aware that they're dreaming, and they have to snap back. and A guidance counselor will tell them, "Oh, what are you going to do when you grow up? You only have a year to figure it out." Um, or if you take a stab at this kind of affair with an older man, how is it really going to work? You know, how you'll be snapped back into reality, and that's what I really liked about it. That it's kind of this. It still preys on that. Um, teen movie 
dream, and yet it's it's battling both sides. It's it's incorporating reality and still being very memory dreamlike. Uh, yeah, I mean, right on. <laughs> I, <laughs> you loved it. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's excellent. I think uh, it is uh, very very exciting to have a another Coppola out there, especially when um, Roman Coppola. His first movie, and since CQ, the inside the mind of Charles Swan was a bit of a, a bust. Uh, it's it's great to have this empire of phenomenally talented female filmmakers that are coming out from Francis Ford Coppola's lineage. I'm um, just wondering if there's going to be any slow slacker rock left for non-Coppola <laughs> directors. So. Uh, maybe not, but you know no. what? They're not going to do um, anything nearly as <laughs> useful with it, so... Who cares? But Palo Alto is really great. I think both that and The Double are uh, two of the most exciting films Movies I've seen so far watch. this year. And they're both expanding. They're open in New York and L.A. now. And, and they both might be on VOD. I need to check on The Double. The Double is, I think. And I, I believe Palo Alto because it's a Tribeca film. Right, movie. right. It's like automatically on VOD. So they're pretty much accessible no matter where you are see these movies um and that pretty much wraps up our episode there was no lightning round this episode but if you have feedback for our lost uh extravaganza dave's lost project please uh, leave comments and tweet at us about them we're very interested um why don't we tell people where they can find us on the internet david yes i am david ehrlich you can find me on twitter at david ehrlich and at criterion corner and uh most of the time right now, I am writing for The Dissolve and The AV Club. So that's where you can find uh, you can find interviews with both Richard yes. Ayolade and Gia Coppola that's that I wrote this week up, up on The Dissolve. And I am Matt Patches. I'm writing on the internet. I have a Richard Ayolade interview at Vanity Fair. And I, I'm actually writing about Palo Alto at Nerve.com. And I'm all over the place. Um, but I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And I put all my work at MattPatches.com. And until next week... Farewell.